0: Well, good morning. We want to welcome all of you that have joined us live this morning as we gather for worship through the way of our social media and the devices that God has given us. So what a blessing to be able to still meet and to still gather as we prepare for the health of our church and keep us safe. We want to thank you for joining us this morning. Uh, we hope you are excited. And again, I want to invite you, if you don't have your Bible with you, take a moment right now at the beginning of our service to go ahead and grab your Bible, grab your notepad, and your pen, pencil, and we will get ready to go in just a few moments after I share a couple of announcements with you but we do want to welcome you whether you're watching us through Facebook live or if you're watching us on YouTube we want to thank you for your faithfulness uh, and your excitement to hear what God's word is going to share with God's people today so we thank you for joining with that said I want to invite all of you that are home that are watching us if you would join us in a moment of prayer as we open this service of fellowship together uh, and to see what God will do through his word and to impact our lives if you would join me as we pray together. Father, we thank you for your love and your mercy. I thank you for this time of the proclamation of your word. I thank you for the gathering of the body of Christ. Lord, as we're around the the community, in our homes, sitting in our living rooms, at our dining room tables, at our kitchen counters, Father, I thank you for those that are faithful to watch your word, to be impacted as disciples of Jesus. We may know your truth, and as you reminded us, your truth will set us free. So, Father, I thank you now for all that will be shared and said. I pray for every computer and every device that's being used. Lord, I pray that you minimize distractions. I pray that volume levels were where they need to be. I pray that your word will clearly be communicated and received by those that are watching today to know what you'd have us to do as your children. Father, we thank you now. We pray your continued protection over our community uh, for this COVID-19 issue. Well, Lord, we thank you for the vaccines that are being available now that are helping to bring healing and, and protection against this. Father, we continue to pray for our national leadership and our our local leaders as they continue to make difficult decisions for the health of our nation. Father, I thank you now for this time. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. I want to welcome you again this morning, and if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and make your way to chapter 19. We're going to be examining verses 1 through 7 of the scripture and looking what Paul is doing in the life of those disciples that he encounters in a place called Ephesus today. But before we get into that, as you're finding your place, I want to share a couple of important announcements about what is going on in the life of our church here as we gather together at Eyes Memorial Baptist Church. We want to remind you that starting this Wednesday, we will begin our Wednesday night dinner meal at 5.30 Followed by our time of prayer where we corporately pray for the needs of our community, the needs of our members, our friends, our neighbors, our national leaders, our law enforcement, EMS, firefighters, our our doctors and nurses, all of those that are are bringing protection right now to us. Uh, We have a great time of sharing prayer needs and prayer concerns in our community, amongst our church. We are a praying church, so we'd encourage you to join us at 6.30 on Wednesday night for our time of prayer. It's when it begins, and that will go to 7.15. Then at 7.15, we will begin again but picking back up in our heaven study and examining what is heaven and what is this biblical view that we as disciples, as followers of Christ, how can we better understand heaven to prepare us daily to live in the challenging circumstances that we have today? And how does that relate to our eternal Use of God in this place called heaven. So we invite you to be there with us at 7:30, uh, excuse me, at 7:15 through 8 o'clock on Wednesday night. And then next Sunday, next Sunday, what you are all waiting for is we will g- again begin to gather in person. Uh, starting on February 7th at the 11 o'clock only worship service. We will not have any Sunday school meetings right now through the month of February just to make sure that the COVID spread that's going on, that has gone on, uh, remains at a minimum to non existent for us. If that goes well, we will open up hopefully back in March with in-person small groups here in our church. Our worship service again next Sunday at 11 a.m. will be in-person and online the way you're watching right now. If you cannot make it here uh, or need to continue to remain in the same circumstance you're in regarding social media. So next Sunday and next Wednesday, great times as we gather back as the body of Christ. I know many of you are excited about coming back together to assemble. Lastly, I want to share with you an announcement regarding our Valentine's dinner we normally have for Valentine's week. Uh, that Wednesday during the Valentine's celebration, our sweetheart dinner is what we call it. Uh, we normally cook big ribeye steaks and baked potatoes and all the trimmings and fixings with our, our kitchen ministry, uh, but we will not be doing that this year, at least not for Valentine's. We may have something later on in the year where we do a big dinner, uh, but right now the Valentine's sweetheart dinner has been canceled for February. So please keep that in your prayers as we look for an opportunity to gather again to celebrate. With that said, I want to welcome you again for joining us. Those of you that are just now coming online, if you're missing the announcements, again, you can replay this video down the road. Even though it's live right now, you can watch it again later on and share it with a friend, a neighbor, a loved one, or a relative. And they can also watch and see the announcements and be kept up to speed on what is going on. But if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn your attention to Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 7. And in way of opening up, I want to share with you an illustration now. As we are all looking forward to February being here and gone and the cold season gone, we are also looking forward to spring. And when spring sprungs, we notice that one of these little things that you see on the screen generally comes up out of the ground. Now, if you don't recognize what's on the image right here, that's an ant mound. Now it's interesting, how does an ant mound play into what we're going to talk about today in Acts chapter 19? Well, it's interesting, that you, did you know that ants are not native to the Americas? Many scientists believe that they were imported and brought in through travel and other folks as they came to our country, but it wasn't a natural thing. So scientists have done a lot of work to figure out how do we get rid of these pesky little ants? Uh, My wife is extremely allergic to ants. If one of them bites her, she swells up, and and, and she has to go get a shot sometimes because of the danger uh, that the ant venom brings to her. So scientists have figured out a way to very cleverly kill an ant. Now, most of you know, like when we were kids, we would go kick the mound, or uh, some of you may pour gasoline on it and light it, and and you blow up your backyard. I wouldn't recommend that technique, Uh, but we know that it's difficult to do. So scientists have discovered that if they make an artificial poison— And they put the type of food that attracts ants into it. What ants will do, and if you read the instructions on the bag, it says, sprinkle gently around the mound. You see ants go out daily looking for food and bringing it back to the nest. And the scientists realized that if we could put the poison in the food, then the ants would take the poison and they would carry it into the colony. And they would feed the queen the poison and eventually... The colony would die within a few weeks from starvation. See, the queen wouldn't put out any more workers, and they would end up dying. Now, you may ask, well, how does that relate to us? Folks, I would challenge you and and argue that what we're going to see here in Scripture on this issue of the dangers of deficiency is a reminder for you and I how poison can come in seemingly unharmful to us, tasty, feels good, tastes good, smells good. And then all of a sudden, when we start to consume that, what it does is it can kill the body of Christ. It can cause such distraction, such disunity, such conflict in the body of Christ in the church by something that we thought was good for us because we didn't know that there was danger that lied ahead. And I would argue as we examine these seven verses of text, we're going to see the dangers of deficiency in our own practice as disciples of Jesus Christ. So I want to invite you to turn to Acts 19, verses 1 through 7, and let's go to the Scriptures and see what God's Word Tells us about this issue as we recount what Paul did in a place called Ephesus. Picking up in chapter 19, verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying there were about twelve men in all. Let's pray together. So, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this portion of scripture that you have led us to today. Father, may we feast on your word. May we understand and comprehend. And may you convict us where we need conviction. Father, may you challenge us where we are comfortable. And, Father, I pray that you comfort today the challenged with your word. We thank you now. Have your way. May the Holy Spirit guide us in all things. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So as I shared with you before, we're going to look at four areas of this scripture. I'm going to break it down for us to understand four specific aspects of dangers, from discipleship to this issue of baptism to doctrinal deficiencies, and then I'll call the last one do-nothing deficiencies as we look at these together. But firstly, I want to share with you the the dangers of discipleship deficiency. Now say that ten times real fast. It's pretty challenging, right? What is the danger of this issue of discipleship? Now, we're going to see it here in the text, and we may scratch our head a little bit, and I'm going to define for you what it means to be a disciple according to the Greek text and according to what Paul is sharing here with us. Notice in the very first verse, as Paul's, Luke is describing what Paul is doing here, he says, And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country, that means the high area of the country, and came to Ephesus. And there he found some disciples. Now, it's interesting that Luke would use this term. In a few moments, we're going to see why it's so interesting, because he's going to describe, in the conversation Paul has with them, the level of discipleship that they're at. So you may ask, what is a disciple? A disciple, by the Greek word, and I've got a definition for you up on the screen that's going to come up, what it means to be a disciple, or metathes, uh, it's a student who adheres to and travels, a teacher in a pedagogical relationship, someone that learns from someone else, often referred to with spiritual leaders as we are discipled by someone else. You may have had been discipled by a Sunday school teacher or a pastor or a grandmother or somewhere else. They discipled you, but we know that the church, the Christian faith that we have in Jesus Christ is because we are a disciple of Jesus one of the first things Jesus told his disciples in Matthew chapter 4 is follow me and I will make you fishers of men. In Matthew 4:19 Jesus says follow me. Jesus is the discipler that we are following and in the Christian faith Christ is the head of the church so it is Christ that we follow in all things. Christ is who disciples his church and he uses those who are followers or disciples of Jesus. To disciple others. One who engages in learning through instruction, a pupil, an apprentice would be another way of understanding this. Now, let me give you a little background on, on, on word study in the New Testament and the Old Testament. Now, uh, the term soteriology or salvation, dealing with deliverance from sin and, and the word salvation to be saved, in the Old Testament, we see that word used 131 times. Now, in all the chapters that we have of the Old Testament, Of all the writings that we have in the Old Testament, it's found 131 times. Now I'm going to connect the dots here. In the New Testament, we see the word soterios, meaning disciple. We find it used 42 more times. Excuse me. The word salvation used 42 times. A total of 173 times the issue of salvation or deliverance from sin is found from Old Testament to New. Now, why do I bring that up? We're talking about disciples. You know how many times in the New Testament alone the word disciple is emphasized in the conversations that are going on? In the New Testament alone, the very word disciple can be found 261 times, almost three times as many that we can find the very word salvation or deliverance found in the entire New Testament and Old Testament combined. Now, why do I draw that correlation? Because there's got to be something important about this word disciple for us to see it 261 times in a few different forms throughout the New Testament alone. There's something important about being a disciple, and we've got to know what it is. Here, Luke tells us that they found some disciples. Now, he doesn't go on to describe how they became a disciple or, or what aspect, but we will see in a few moments as I unwrap this for you. That there were disciples of other types and other flavors also. I would argue today we have disciples of other things. One of the leading things that I would tell you that people are a disciple of right now in the family is their children. Discipling their children not in the Christian faith, but in making their child successful in life. You see, success is what they're being discipled by. It could be the sports field. I see a lot of football disciples going on. I see a lot of gymnastic discipleship happening. I see a lot of basketball discipleship happening. I see a lot of sports emphasis in our communities today to help prepare our children to get that scholarship or that athletic benefit by their skill. You see, we've got a lot of different types of discipleship. You may be, be discipled by the fishing boat, the lake, your lake house, Whatever distracts us in life that we follow and put our energy in, I would argue that thing is what is discipling those who follow it. You see, as disciples of Christ, it is Christ and Christ alone that is the discipler for His church. As the body of Christ, when we say we are disciples of Jesus, I, I would argue the correct noun to associate the church with is not Christian, is disciple. That's what we're called to be. If you remember in Matthew chapter 28 and 19 through 20, Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples, the same word that we find. He didn't say go and make good church members. He didn't say go and grow your church. He didn't say grow and grow your small group. He didn't say go and grow your Sunday school class. Jesus said go and make disciples. There's got to be something unique about a disciple that follows Jesus Christ. And how do we know to follow him? We know to follow him through his word. The Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. We have the Word of God right here in our hands. We get to read it daily if we choose. If we're a disciple, we follow what the discipler has given us. Time with God. So how do we know whether or not we are Jesus' disciples? Now, I'm going to start off a little slow in point one, and we're going to build upon this, so I hope this gets you warmed up for what's coming. But here's a few quick ways to know whether or not we're a disciple. Now, do we love, not loathe, the Word of God. Now, we understand the definition of loathe, something that causes us discomfort, something we don't like, something that when we think about it, we just kind of turn up our nose and say, I don't want any more of that. Don't make me do that. I remember that's kind of how it was before I became a disciple of Jesus, when my wife would try to drag me to this little Baptist church in the middle of nowhere, Alabama. Finally, I gave in. Why why was it such a struggle for me to go to church at that point in my life? Because I wasn't a disciple of God, so I didn't love God's Word. I loathed it. It was burdensome. It was was something that I didn't like, I didn't enjoy, I didn't find favor in it. I I didn't love it by no means. I loathed it before I became a disciple. But you see, when I became a disciple, I loved the Word of God. I found truth and life in the Word of God. There's an indicator for us whether or not we're a disciple. Maybe you're a church member. You don't love the Word of God. Well, I would argue, are you a church member or are you a disciple? Because remember, Jesus didn't tell us to be church members. We are the church if we're a disciple. And if we're a disciple, what did Jesus say? Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Right? Make disciples. Number two, we love not loathe God's presence how often I hear a person in a conversation saying to me, well, you know, Pastor, I don't need church. I don't need to go and be there. I can worship God on my own. There's something about the presence of the assembly of the body of Christ that when we come together to worship God, We know the scriptures say where two or more are gathered in his name, God's presence is there. Now, we sometimes take that out of context because Jesus was talking about conflict and what was going on and how God would help solve that conflict through church discipline. But we know that when we gather together, we love being in the presence and worshiping God. How do I know I'm a disciple? Because I love to be in the presence of God. I love to come to the, the assembly, the body of Christ, wherever we gather, be it in this building or somewhere else be it a convention or be at a conference, when the church is gathered, the ecclesia or the karyakis, those under the lordship of Jesus, we love it. We miss it. Many of you right now are sitting at home missing the very gathering of God's people to come together to worship Him, to be in His presence as a people, not individually. But thirdly, we love not loathe God's people. Yeah, God's people, one another. While well, we're all different, all different races, nationalities tribes ethnicities every ethnic around the world we love god's people if they claim to be a follower of jesus christ we're commanded to love not only our neighbor but to love one another as christ loved his church see we love not love god's people when we're a follower when we're a disciple of jesus but fourthly we love not loathe god's service when we're asked to serve or to use our gift, when you know God has burdened you with a specific talent and given you that blessing to use it for the benefit of others, we love using the gift. I'll be honest with you, church. I love the ministry that goes on Monday through Saturday as a pastor, talking with our people and receiving phone calls. I received a wonderful phone call this morning from one of our saints that just wanted to let me know that she had called me to let me know that she was praying for me. I love the ministry Monday through Saturday. But man, on Sunday morning, God's given me a gift to proclaim and preach His Word. I love to use that ability in serving God. You see, when God has given you a talent and you are a disciple of Jesus, you love to use it, whether it's serving in our nursery, fundamentally important to the life of a church, whether it's teaching and discipling our little children in preschool and kindergarten all through the, the final grades of high school, what a fundamental element of discipleship that goes on in those ministries. If God has given you that gifting, we should love, not loathe, to serve God with our talents and our giftings. And fifthly, we love, not loathe, God's sacrifice. Now, yes, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross of Calvary, but did you know that He's called you and I to sacrifice as well in our time, talents, treasures? We love giving back to God because we've realized and we come to understand this principle that I can never outgive God's blessings. I can never give God more than what He's giving me. And I can only receive when my hand is opened and I'm giving away the very blessings that God has given me through sacrifice. Guess what God does? He outpours upon me even more so that my barns are filled, my cup overflows. We love not loathe God's sacrifice. There are some indicators for us as a church, for you that are watching, of whether or not you are a disciple of Jesus. And I would argue those are good guidelines. But let me share with you, secondly, the dangers of what I call the dipping deficiency. The dipping deficiency. Now, there's a lot of debate around different denominations about this issue of baptismo or baptism. To be submersed under the water and what it means and what actually happens at baptism and when does this Holy Spirit come upon you? So here's what I want you to know. Number one, take this away with you, put it in your tool bag. Knowing what, knowing what to believe is more important than believing what you know. Now, think about that again. Let me read it to you again. Knowing what to believe is more important than believing what you know. See, what you know and what I know has a finite range. We only know a certain amount until we know something else. Doesn't that make sense? So if we always rest on what we know, or maybe what we have been taught by tradition or or by some other process, if we rest on just that, then you only know what you know. But I would argue believing what to know in way of doctrine is more important than knowing what you know unless the two of them come together so we've got to understand this issue of doctrine and what does the doctrine say about the issue of baptism i want to turn your attention to verse 2 in chapter 19 of the book of acts picking up in verse 2 and he said to them did you receive the holy spirit when you believed and they said no we have not even heard that there is a holy spirit and he said into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, and that is Jesus. Now, some theologians stop and put the brakes on here for a moment and go back to Luke's initial word, Mathetas, the use of that word disciple here in the Greek. And they say that, wait a minute. What kind of disciples were these to begin with? Because we know that in order to be a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, we know clearly, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 tell me, that if I confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord, and I believe in my heart that He was raised from the dead, then I will be saved. You see, that's a doctrinal issue that, that Paul made clear to this church in Ephesus, by the way, about this issue of soteriology, soterios, the salvation that we have. See, we understand the doctrine of this issue. We can get to the heart of what was going on. Some would argue that Luke uses the term disciple very loosely here because they may not have been a disciple of Jesus, because notice there's no mention of Jesus. They mention an act of getting submersed and being baptized into John's repentance, all that they knew, again, emphasizing the fact that if we only know what we know, we're limited. But see, Paul is going to expound their knowledge and explain to them more accurately what was going on and lead them into this affirmed decision of following Jesus Christ as a believer. Now, to baptize means to employ with water in a religious ceremony designated to symbolize purification and the initiation on the basis of repentance. Now, John was preparing the way, John the Baptist, for Jesus to come. Now, this is the baptism that they were baptized into, the baptism of repentance. If you remember from a few sermons ago, we looked at the last part of chapter 18 of the book of Acts, and we saw a man by the name of Apollos, who also didn't know the way more correctly, who was also baptized by John's baptism, and he was taken aside by two members of the body of Christ, two disciples. And that family, Priscilla and Aquila, grabbed Apollos and explained to him in private more accurately the way. So, Apollos could know the doctrine upon which he stands. But see, the difference was Apollos was professing Jesus as Lord. He was proclaiming Jesus, but his doctrine was a little bit off track, and he got back on track by a faithful disciple who helped disciple him. Now, here we see a little different circumstance. Here, these men claim to be disciples, but they know nothing of this baptism. Of the Holy Spirit. They know nothing of the baptism that Jesus spoke about when he gave us the commandment to go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. Here, those these disciples, when they're asked by Paul, what baptism did you have? They had no idea. Now, why is this important for you and I? I would argue, folks, there are a lot of children baptized in churches they grow up having no idea why they were baptized or what it really signified. Never got grounded as a disciple and a follower of Jesus. They were a follower of their youth group. They might have been a follower of their youth pastor. They might have been a follower of their their grandma who pushed them into the the baptismal waters because they needed Jesus. But in their later years, they know nothing of the true Jesus and this empowering of the Holy Spirit where God's presence comes to dwell within the believer. There are many who, during circumstances and turmoils of their life, they reach out and cry out for deliverance to their circumstance, and they forgot all about their salvation, and they make a decision, and they get dunked, dipped, and wet in the baptism, and then three months later, I don't see them anywhere in the church. Here's my little catchy phrase, right? Whether you got dunked, whether you got dipped, or whether you got sprinkled, without Jesus, all you got was wet. Jesus is the core of what we need to know. So let me share a little bit more with you. The baptism practiced by John the Baptist was seen to reflect far more the Jewish pattern of ritual washing than the type of baptism employed by Christians, which constituted a symbol of an initiation into the Christian community on the basis of belief and a loyalty to Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. You see, corporately here, when we baptize, a couple things happen. Number one, it is the public profession of your faith in Christ Jesus. You can walk down the aisle and pray with a pastor or in a classroom with with a teacher, and salvation may come on you at that moment. But your public profession of faith in Jesus is when you get wet in that baptismal pool. And I ask you, have you accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Have you repented of your sin? Do you vow to walk with him all the days of your life? Yes. And we baptize you in a triune baptism in the name of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And then we walk with you. So you affirm your decision in Christ Jesus in the baptism. And then we as the body of Christ affirm that yes, we will disciple you and watch you grow in Jesus. And be there to lift you up, to teach you, to instruct you. And yes, to even discipline and chastise you when needed. That's the role of the body of Christ. We as a congregation do that and agree to that as we witness and observe, give testimony to your baptism in Jesus Christ. Who else was baptized per se? Well, I want to share with you, Jewish proselytes were baptized for the cleansing of their sin. Initiation rites served also for women. You see, the Jewish proselyte would be circumcised. Well, what was the mark of a female proselyte to be circumcised? Well, obviously that couldn't happen. She was baptized along with the Jewish proselytes, signifying the purification of your sin. Jeremiah 2.22 would say the following, Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord. You see, the Jewish followers would have understood the the importance of getting clean and cleansed. Psalm 51.7 would say this, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. You see, but where that stopped and failed to meet the true atonement that was offered in Jesus Christ is that we were still dead in our sins and trespasses. We may be outwardly clean through the ceremonial indoctrination of following and being a proselyte of Judaism, but nothing took away our sin. You see, even the Jews knew that. They would have one celebration a year where they would have the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, And the high priest would go and he would offer atonement for his sins and then the sins of the nation of Israel. They would sacrifice one lamb and they would send another lamb out into the wilderness and they would pray over it and ceremonially marking, giving all the sin, the scapegoat, if you will, to send it off into the wilderness. But one lamb would lose his life and be slaughtered for the people. Man, what an indicator of what Jesus did for you and I. As John would say, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. You see, when we're baptized into Jesus' name, that's exactly what happens. Pagans had ritualistic practices, and those pagans would also immerse themselves in blood and baptize themselves, if you will. So it's not a Christian thing. This was going on long before. But what makes it a Christ thing is the fact that we recognize that we are baptized into new, new life, just like Jesus was dead, buried, and rose again. We, too, in our baptism of faith in Christ Jesus, we are dead to our old way of life, and we are risen again. Let me share with you a couple of verses of Scripture to help us understand what was going on here. If you go to Romans chapter 6, you don't have to turn there. I'm going to give you some verses, and you can spend the rest of this week just studying these verses, and you will have attended one of the best Bible studies you've had in a long time, I promise you. As you look at the Word of God and you look at the text and begin to look at what I'm going to share with you in just a moment, Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 5, You can also find this in Colossians chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. Put them notes, those scripture verses in your notes, and just hang on to your seat for a minute. I'm going to walk you through five ways we see Jesus in our baptism. Five ways we see Jesus. Now, remember what I said, whether you got dipped, dunked, sprinkled, or some other way, if you didn't get Jesus, all you got was wet. So here we go. Number one, how do we know what's going on? The dangers of dipping deficiency. The dangers of differing deficiency. Number one, buried with Him by baptism. Let me read for you Romans 6, 3, and 5. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we've been united with Him in death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. You see, we who have been baptized in the name of Jesus were not only buried with Him by that baptism, that going under the water, the same significance of Jesus going into the tomb when He was dead. And then being raised by faith in him, the same significance of the resurrection morning when the disciples went to the tomb, the followers of Jesus, and what did they find? The tomb was empty, for the Lord was not here. He is risen. You see, when we come out of that baptismal waters, we know that placing our faith in Christ Jesus, we're not only buried with him, but we are raised by faith. Right By faith and faith alone, not by anything we can do. It's a gift of God, not by works. That's the Ephesians passage, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. The Romans 10, verses 9 and 10 passage I believe I gave you earlier. We confess with our mouth that Jesus was Lord. We believe in our heart that He was raised from the dead. We, too, when we go through the baptisms, pull. Uh, the waters of baptism are raised by faith in Christ Jesus. But number three, we also see here in the Scriptures. Let me read Colossians 2, 12 and 14 for you. Having been buried with him in baptism, notice there's synergy going on here in the Scripture. right? Well, you've heard it said before, the best interpretation for Scripture is Scripture. It doesn't contradict itself. There's no circular reasoning. There, there's no flaws or errors. We believe in the inerrancy of the Word of God that we have is inerrant, profitable for correcting, training, teaching, rebuking, so that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. Here we see in the letter to Colossae, Paul writes, he says, "...having been buried with him by baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith, in the powerful working of God." Notice he, who Paul gives credit to. Not himself. Not even Apollos. Matter of fact, he confronts a church conflict in a place called Corinth by saying, I not baptized any of you to my knowledge. Some of you were baptized by Apollos, some by Paul. There was a conflict brewing over who was baptizing. Paul says here, who did the work through the baptism? Who raised us from the dead? Who gave us this faith? It was the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in trespasses... And the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. See, that's what goes on, what happens when we come to faith in Christ Jesus. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with all its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to a cross. Now, imagine today coming out of the Christmas season where some of us probably overspent a little bit on gifts or maybe you bought that house that's a little bit too big for you. Maybe you got that extra car because your other one broke down and you find yourself in a place where debt has amassed and and you've got all this financial debt and you're, you're, you're struggling to get on top of it. Now, imagine if someone came into your home, sat down at your dining room table and said, tell me how much you owe. And they whipped out their checkbook and they sat it down. Real quick, I'd be looking at my wife saying, Hey, baby, make sure you go look at the other files. We don't want to forget no receipts here. Let's get the full amount. And that person began to, after you gave them the amount, whatever it was, imagine if that person was to write out a check to pay for all of your debts. And they give it to you and say, This is yours. I've paid for it all. Imagine what that would do to our minds and our, our families, our homes. Imagine how much conflict we think that would solve in our marriage and our relationships. And our stress level, you know, that's the same thing that God has already done for you and I, but not in a fleshly, worldly way of possessions of the things here, but the very fact that the debt that we have, the wages of sin, is death. The debt, the way we pay the debt of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. You see, Jesus already wrote out that check and left it blank when he died on the cross at Calvary. For not only the sins that you're in today, but the sins that you commit while you're in Christ as a disciple. You can see, we're sinners who sin before Christ. After Christ, we're saints who occasionally fall into sin. And then Christ forgives us if we repent of those sins. You see, Jesus has already paid the price for the sins I committed before Christ, the sins I commit in Christ. He's even paid the debt for the sins you're going to commit in five to ten years from now. You don't want to do it, as Paul says. Why do I do the things I don't want to do, and I don't do what I want to do? Oh, what a wretched man am I. Who will deliver me from this? How does he close that sentence? Ah, but Christ, Jesus. See, Jesus has already wrote that check with his body as it was nailed as you see there, to a cross. It was Jesus that paid the price. It was Jesus on Calvary's cross. But isn't it beautiful that he tells us that because of Jesus, we were united with him. Who's the him the scripture's referring to? It's Jesus. How are we united? We're one assembly, one body, the universal church, where we are all who have placed our trust and faith in Christ Jesus. We're united in him in Christ. And what do we have in store for us? A resurrection just like His. Isn't it beautiful that we see when we understand our doctrine of what baptism signifies and what Jesus has done for us so that we may be baptized in His name, the very thing He commands us to do, to go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the name of the Son, the name of the Holy Spirit. When we understand this issue of baptism and what happens and what took place and what it signifies, it provides us a tremendous amount of clarity to overcome the danger of a doctrinal deficiency. See that I argue, brothers and sisters, plagues, many churches, many believers, many who profess to know Jesus, but are not following Him Jesus' way. They may say they're disciples, and they may be just like these men Paul found in Ephesus. They're, they're a disciple of something, but it's not a disciple of the way the truth, and the life, a disciple of Jesus. But fourthly, let me share with you the dangers of what I call do-nothing deficiencies. Now, why do I title it do-nothing deficiencies? Well, because often we have this aspect in, in our own life that we really don't have to do anything. Jesus has done it all for us on the cross of Calvary. I even hear some preach messages on the fact that Jesus wants us to have our best life now. He wants to bless you with a bigger car, a bigger house, a better job, a prettier wife. Folks, that is not the blessings that we have. And we're not to sit back and rest on our laurels. Let me remind you what Genesis chapter 1, and as you read through the creation account and narrative, that God created man in his image, in his likeness. He created them both male and female. And later on, we'll see that while he created us and is like us, he charged us and he gave man dominion over all of the things, all of the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the creepy crawly things, the animals of the earth. God gave dominion to mankind, dominion, meaning control, a responsibility to tend the garden that God had provided. You see, when we sit back and think, well, we have no responsibility this often, we are in error and we're deficient. So let me share with you some scripture verses. Now, I want to talk to you a little bit about this, this verse in verse 6 and 7. If you've got your Bible, look at verse 6 and 7 for a minute. And I want to read these verses to you. Follow along with me as I read them. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they were beginning. They began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. Now, you can go ahead and scratch your head If you like with me, the way I did when I first read this and didn't understand this glossolalia, the word for speaking in tongues that we, we understand now, what that means to have this prophetic ability to speak in a language that is often uninterpretable by others who don't have that gifting. Now, there was a reason for it, so let me share with you a little bit to clarify the confusion that is often surrounding this issue of speaking in tongues. Notice you say, clearly, Scripture says that this happened. Paul had laid his hands on them, and the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. Now let me start off by giving you an understanding of the the scriptures. Why did they speak in tongues here? Well, Paul makes clear in 1 Corinthians 14.22. If you'll go to the next slide for me, I want to share with you. While you're listening, at the very bottom of that slide are all the reference that I'm fixing to share with you to help you understand this usage of glossolalia, the speaking of tongues, and why it was used and how it fulfilled a prophetic requirement, a prophetic pronouncement of what God was doing in the life of not only Israel, but the Gentiles, the pagan nation, those who were not the chosen people of God, and how it was revealing God's prophecy to the nation of Israel. So hold on to it as we get ready to go through it. Let me start by sharing with you what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14.22. He clarifies it in one verse and says this issue on the aspect of speaking in tongues. He says, thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but unbelievers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. All right, so we can put it in that camp right off the bat. Paul says that the speaking of tongues is not for the believer. It's so that others may observe and others will see. Now a few theologians are going to dig a little deeper, and we're going to go Old Testament here for a minute, and I'm going to start in Isaiah 28:11, and I'm going to share with you the prophetic vision of what these prophets in the Old Testament were giving regarding the tongue and the foreign nation that would not be speaking the native tongue of Hebrew, but another tongue, and how God would use that to bring about his perfect will for the nation of Israel. Isaiah 28:11. Isaiah 28, 11 shares this, verses 11 and 12. For by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people to whom he has said, this is rest, give rest to the weary, and this is repose. Yet they would not hear. What's Paul doing here? He lays his hands on, he's baptized these men, lays his hands on, them. the Holy Spirit comes on, they begin to speak. Now, these are Ephesians. They may be prophets. We don't know 100% what they were following or what kind of disciple they were, but they begin to speak and fulfill the very prophecy that Isaiah 28, says. 2 Kings 17:23 talks about this. He says, Until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight, and he had spoken by all his servants, the prophets, so Israel was exiled from their own land to Assyria until this day. Let me share with you what one theologian by the name of David Peterson says. He, uh, he gives us several helpful facts about this incident that Paul's writing about regarding this issue of tongues. And he says this, three different main points as you're listening. At one level, it was the appropriate dramatic inauguration of Paul's ministry in this city where God's Spirit would be remarkably at work opposing the power of magic and false religion and winning many to Christ throughout the region. See, Peterson saying that this ability for them to speak in tongues was a physical manifestation of the power of God that God was using through the Apostle Paul to reach this heathenistic, pagan group of people there in Ephesus. He goes on to say this, and at another level, it was specifically related to the identity and the need of those particular men. Now, we don't know who those 12 men were, but we can imagine that if they all had families, children... This 12 men could quickly become a group of 60 people, maybe even one of the very first church plants in this city of Ephesus, and how they would understand and use that ability to prophesy about the power of God and what God was doing influencing others. As those men influenced, Peterson says, in some way by the ministry of John the Baptist, they were brought into the collective, collectively into the community established by Jesus and his disciples through the Spirit. See, now they're part of the community. In a salvation in historical terms, Peterson goes on to say, they were a transitional group whose full incorporation into the church needed to be openly demonstrated. Right? How many of you drive by a car and you see that license plate in Missouri and you immediately think of the show-me state, right? Some people aren't going to believe anything unless you show them the power of God. And there are some who will see it and still choose not to believe. You see this was a manifestation of the power of God to allow others to see that God was doing something remarkable here with the apostle Paul. David K Lauer another theologian would agree with Pauls summarizing 1 Corinthians 14:22 and he says the following He says, the citation of the portion of Isaiah's prophecy against Israel that I've read to you. Israel refused to listen to God's message proclaimed by his prophets, and Isaiah had predicted that the message would come. This would be delivered in a foreign tongue, unintelligible to the Israelites, yet unambiguous. Unambiguous. He's using the tongue of a foreign nation to show his prophetic ability. He goes on to say the following, the foreign tongue symbolized God's rejection. God's rejection. Listen to how Deuteronomy 28, 49 says, The Lord will bring a nation against you far from, uh, from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like an eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand. I hope you're starting to connect the dots and seeing how this glossolalia, how language and this this ability to speak in tongues is a fulfillment of what we see in the Old Testament, of what God said would happen to the nation of Israel when they disobeyed Him and refused to follow Him. The same thing when they refused to recognize His Messiah, Jesus. And they nailed Him to a cross, spat on Him, yelled, Crucify, crucify, crucify. They didn't recognize the voice of Jesus. Now they're seeing the prophecy come to life here. His disciplinary response to Israel, the stiff neck, and they rebelled against him. You see that in 2 Kings 17 and 14 in Acts chapter 7, verse 51, at the stoning of Stephen. Foreigners instead of Israel became the temporary servants of God. And their foreign tongue was a punitive sign to Israel of what had taken place place. Paul summarizes it, and I'll leave it with this. Matter of fact, let me stop and let me me tell you what Jesus said in Matthew 21, 43. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. Who was he talking to? The Pharisees, the religious Israelites, those who knew the law but kept it not what Jesus says. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to people producing its fruits. You see, these these tongues that these men were speaking in Ephesus were an outward manifestation of what God was doing in His judgment against Israel and showing the power of God. Uninterpreted tongues had their place, but not in the church, where prophecy benefited believers, according to 1 Corinthians 14.3. Paul was saying that very thing. The tongues had their place here as we see in Ephesus with these 12 months. They had a place and a specific purpose that God was doing during that apostolic age to show the power and the glory of God for the growth of His church and the sharing of His gospel. But in the church, we need to prophesy the truths of God's Word. We need to proclaim God's will to mankind. So how do we avoid the dangers of the do-nothing barriers? Let me give you a couple ways real quickly. Number one, we can use Paul's example that we see here in verse 6. Number one, if you're a faithful follower of Christ, be faithful in sharing the gospel. And don't take for granted the fact that someone may think they know Jesus. You need to dig a little deeper. Ask them through a relationship, build a friendship, and you'll get to know what someone puts their faith in. You'll get to know what they're being discipled by when you build a relationship with people. Be faithful in sharing the gospel in our actions and our deeds. Let them see that in our life. Paul took these men aside and asked them, what baptism are you talking about? When I counsel with young folks or people that transfer from a different denomination, I talk to them about the issue of baptism to make sure they understand that it's the baptism in the Lord Jesus Christ, the name of the Father, the name of the Son, the Holy Spirit, and how we go about them to make sure they are anchored in the gospel truths because I care about their soul, not because I care about their denomination. Number two, avoid closet Christian syndrome. This CCS, if you will, that I see going on rampantly. Closet Christian syndrome is where we we get all the Jesus we want and we think we're good because we made some prophetic decision. Uh, We prayed some magical prayer and we were dip-dunked or drenched in a baptism somewhere, and then we're as far from God as we've ever been. But yet we're lying to ourselves thinking we know God. You see, there's a manifestation of the Holy Spirit that comes upon you when you truly are a Christian. It happened right here with these men in Ephesus. Paul lays his hands on them. Now, sometimes throughout the book of Acts, we've seen like we did with with some of the, the other baptisms that took place. With Cornelius, he was baptized and immediately the Holy Spirit came upon him. Others were baptized and the hands were laid upon them and the Holy Spirit came on to them afterwards. Matter of fact, the disciples didn't have the Holy Spirit until Jesus departed. He even tells them in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you will receive, future tense, you will receive the Holy Spirit. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be, future tense, my disciples. Here we see that if we don't avoid this issue of closet Christianity, we need to be in the body of Christ amongst the assembly of the body, learning and growing and making that public profession of faith that we have in Christ known to others, very thing that happened here. Thirdly, we need to look for the evidence of the Holy Spirit in our life. Is there evidence that you're saved? What do you mean, pastor, is there evidence? Nobody knows the salvation of man. No one knows my heart but God. Well, that's a true theological statement. But Jesus also said this, you will know them By their fruit. What fruit? What fruit is growing in your life that helps you know that the Holy Spirit dwells in you? I'm not talking about perfection. I'm not talking about living a sinless life. Here's a a good way to evaluate whether or not the Holy Spirit dwells with you. When you sin, notice I said when, not if. But when you sin, is there conviction in your heart that you need to repent of it and ask Jesus to forgive you? There's probably the first biggest indicator whether or not the Holy Spirit dwells in your life. But if you sin and there's no repentance of it, but repetition rather, I would argue it's awful difficult for a house divided to stand. We can't claim that we're of God, but yet being dwelt by the power of the evil one, being dwelt by sin. They can't mix like oil and vinegar. You shake it up, but after a little while it settles down, and when it settles, you can clearly see that the two have not blended together. Look for the evidence in, in our life. And fourthly, understand that Christianity is not an isolated incident. It's not an isolated incident. Here, these men that were baptized went on to affect what was happening in Ephesus for years to come. Their families, we can assume, That they were brought into the faith. They also were followed through like Cornelius' family. They were baptized into the faith and the church began to grow in Ephesus. Folks, we have a, a letter from Paul titled, The Letter to the Ephesians. Where did it all start? I'd argue its grounding is partly right here. As we see these disciples that are anchored in not dangerous doctrine, but the true doctrine. One little boy was in Sunday school class, and he was asked by his Sunday school teacher, Little Johnny, do you know what doctrine is? And little Johnny said, Yes, sir. I know what doctrine is. Doctrine's when you're sick and you go to the hospital, and that's what the doctor does. Gives you doctrine. He's probably more correct than he realized he was. You see, correct doctrine is what we go and we get when we need healing from our sickness. And I'd argue the correct doctrine of God provides that very healing, the need for our salvation, for our eternal security that we have only in Christ Jesus. So let me close you with a statement. The best defense against doctrinal deficiency is a daily diet of deity, a daily dousing of God's Word, a daily time where we spend it in the Scriptures, understanding what the Scriptures are saying. And when we get confused, we say, you know what? I only know what I know but I need to know what I need to know. And we search it out. We find a Bible teacher. We find a Sunday school teacher. We anchor ourselves in a church that preaches and teaches the Word of God in a way that we can get it. We understand it. That's the daily dose of deity that we need. That helps us grow as disciples. It doesn't leave us in a broken condition with false assumptions. It's been feeding us this ant poison, so we carry it back to the colony, and the whole thing ends up dying off. We liked it. It tasted sweet. It was good, but it killed us in the end. Let me close with this. There's a thing, if you've ever read a map, we don't read maps too much anymore. Uh, in, in the way we travel and navigate, but I, I've had some experiences. My son, or, both of my boys are Eagle Scouts, and we've had to learn to read maps together, and I've had to show them how to read these things. And I've had a little bit of training on a map, and here's something I know about a map. When you open a map, you can use a, a compass or a protractor, and you can determine a location on a map on that piece of paper. And you can draw some lines, and you can figure out what degree an azimuth, that's what we call it, the azimuth that you're on, from the, the map north to grid north and to a thing that's called true north. You see, in the, in the great northern hemisphere, there's this iron ore deposit. And every time you put a compass out and you see that little needle going, that needle is magnetically polarized to the north area. And it points to what we call magnetic north, MN, if you see there on the picture. Matter of fact, i got a bigger picture for you you can, you can look at it. So on the MN, we've got what the compass says, magnetic north. But notice there's a star right there in the middle. And that star is where true north points. That's where that iron ore deposit is that makes that needle reflect on the compass. And then you see over on the left-hand side, you've got what they call grid north. What's north on the map, according to the paper. Now, you'll notice those little angles here. I'm not trying to be too too confusing with you. It'll all make sense in a moment. Now, if you just go ahead and take your compass and you shoot a azimuth based on what the grid north tells you, it's only going to be a little bit off. You'll notice over here we've got a total of about 8 degrees from grid north to magnetic north and true north, the variance in between. Now, imagine being 8 degrees off of the azimuth and walking, and here's what I've learned the hard way. When you're off a little bit and you fail to computate the conversion going from grid north to magnetic north, and you walk a 1,000 yards, 1,000 feet, you're going to be off possibly anywhere from 20 to 80 feet to the left or the right, depending on which way you lean when you walk. Now imagine going further. Imagine going a mile. Imagine when you fail to convert and you don't use the declination diagram how much further you get from true north the longer you're at it. I believe that's a picture of what happens In our life, when our doctrine is deficient, even a little bit, the longer we go at it, the more we get away from true north. The farther and longer it is, we've got to make a correction to get back to true north. You see, that's what happens in our life spiritually when we've got a deficiency in our doctrine. It's like being off course. Somewhere along that path, we've got to make a course correction and shoot a new azimuth to get us on true north so we know where to follow. Let me share with you an image of true north. True north is the cross of Calvary. True north is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If we follow true north, we will never get off course. If we follow Jesus, if we're disciples of Christ, of his word, we don't have to worry about being off course. We keep our nose In the doctrine. We demonstrate the principles of being a disciple. We love God's Word. We love God's presence. We love God's people. We love God's service. We love God's sacrifice. We emanate them in our daily life. It'll keep us on true north. Friend, Jesus is true north. Whatever compass you may be guided by right now, if it's not Jesus, you're off course. We want to invite you to get on course with us here at Ives Memorial Baptist Church as we follow Jesus together. Let me close in a word of prayer. And when I close, there'll be some information at the end of this, this message for you to follow up with us. If you have questions or would like to know more about what I've shared with you today, there's a way for you to follow up and there is a way. And his name is Jesus. Let me close this in prayer. So Father, we thank you for your love and your mercy. We thank you for your word. We thank you. Father, that you show us the error of doctrine and deficiencies that are there, and you provide the way through your Son Jesus Christ, through your written word, through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, to return to true north and keep our eyes fixed on the author and perfecter of our faith, Christ Jesus. Lord, if there's one out there today that does not know you, that's listened to this message, but knows in their heart they need to follow you. Lord, I pray that they will follow up with the information provided. Help us to counsel with them and share the good news of Jesus Christ. We thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. God bless you.